Well, good morning again. Um, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15 and just put your finger there and then turn backwards to Luke chapter 8 because we're going to be uh, in both of those places. We'll be a little bit all around um, everywhere, but those are the, the two main places, Luke chapter 15 and Luke chapter 8. Um, as uh, Mike said, my name is Will. I'm originally from Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. Nobody ever has ever heard of that. Um, but it is, um, if you know where Emporia, Virginia is, one person knows where it's at, yeah. Okay, great, great. Um, if, you, if you have ever been up and down Interstate 95, Roanoke Rapids is the halfway point between Miami and New York City. And so um, we've got a Sheets and a couple steakhouses and... Uh, that's pretty much about it, but uh, it's a pretty, pretty good place. My wife is, uh, her name is Brittany. She's from Pennsylvania, which is a good ways away, and uh, brought her down south and trying to get the Yankee out of her best we can. She's actually in the nursery by there. We have two children, uh, Graham, who is two, and he's not in here because the terrible twos is not a cliche. He would be running all around, playing with cars and, and yelling and, and disrupting everything. And then we have Everly. She is six months old. And she is back there as well, and she's awesome. I never knew how much different it would be by having a little boy and a little girl. And it's like she is just like the perfect little angel. She's my little flower, and she can never do anything wrong <laughs> until she probably becomes a teenager, and then it'll be off that. But we moved to uh, Lynchburg about a year ago. Um, as Mike said, I was a youth pastor in North Carolina, uh, bivocationally. So I also worked at Sherwin-Williams Paint Store and got transferred to Lynchburg about a year ago. And at the end of this summer, we'll be going back to North Carolina to a little place called Clinton. And if you ever thought you had been to the boondocks, you have not been to Clinton yet, evidently, because they don't even say Clinton. They say Clinton like that. So it's, it's really weird. I'm going to have to translate for my wife because she doesn't understand Southerners anyway. But um, I'm in seminary at Wake Forest, uh, Southeastern Seminary. And uh, which is about an hour from where we'll be moving, so I'll be able to go back and forth and finish up my seminary degree in uh, ethics. And uh, I went to, I'm familiar with Lynchburg, um, living there, because I went to Liberty. I uh, graduated in 2007. And uh, just to open up my sermon, I was going to tell you a little bit of uh, a story. I, I majored in political science at Liberty. I never thought I would actually going to ministry. When I was probably 17 or 18, I, I kind of felt called to go into ministry, and it scared me because I never wanted to be a preacher, and everybody in my church kept calling me preacher boy and things like that, and I didn't like that. So when I went to Liberty, I was going to go there and, and, and study like ministry and things like that, and then I decided to rebel against that, so I did political science, which landed me in a paint store because there's like absolutely hardly anything you can do with a political science degree. I wish I would have known that back then, but um. One of, the, um, one of the hardest classes I ever took at uh, Liberty was called um, International Conflict. And if you have ever taken any kind of political science classes or anything like that, that's kind of one of those classes you just have to take. And I remember for the final exam, the professor, um, he just basically gave out what they call blue books. It was just a blue book full of pages. And he says, okay, I want you to write an essay about every single underlying conflict that ever happened for every European war in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I was like, good gracious, how in the world am I supposed to remember every single war in Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries? But um, I remember 
very uh, specifically, right before he gave out the exam, he said, remember this, don't get so caught up in the details that you miss the big picture. And so I was kind of studying for being here this morning, and I was thinking about, I was just thinking about that, don't get so caught up in the details that you miss the big picture. And I think that's probably pretty good advice for life, really. Don't get so caught up in the details that you miss the big picture of what's going on. But it's also helpful when it comes to reading and interpreting Scripture, as we're going to talk about this morning. So as we look at Luke chapter 15, I kind of want to go there first before we go to Luke chapter 8, because I think it helps us see the big picture of what's going on in Luke chapter 8. So if you found Luke chapter 15, stay right there for a second. And let's pray together first. God, this morning as we um, just sit under the authority of your word, that you would just speak to our hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just illuminate the word so that everything that we see, everything that we hear points to the gospel and points to what you've done on the cross, Lord. And God, help us to see the big picture so that Everything that we do and everything that we say would glorify you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you, uh, how many of you like Christmas movies? Does anybody like Christmas time, sit around the house with some coffee or hot cocoa or whatever and like Christmas movies? What's some of your favorite Christmas movies? You can just yell them out to me. I don't even care. Just Wonderful Life. It's a classic. Yep. Any others? Christmas Story. You'll shoot your eye out. Yeah. That's, that's probably my favorite. That's probably top favorite one right there. Ralphie. Yeah, I love that kid. Uh, anybody else? How about Home Alone? That's a good one. Home Alone. Love that one. Rudolph. That's a good one. The Grinch. My wife loves The Grinch. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my, I think probably A Christmas Story is up there as number one. Second favorite Christmas movie is a lesser-known Christmas movie that not a lot of people really remember or ever talk about, but it's called Jingle All the Way. Has anybody ever heard of Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger? And he's not, like, killing people or punching and stuff like that, fighting. He's, um, well, let me set it up for you since obviously nobody's ever heard of Jingle All the Way in here. Uh, The movie is about um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's this guy. He's this dad. He works a lot. Uh, He's not really home a lot. And uh, his wife tells him that their son really wants this toy for Christmas, and his name is Turbo Man. And so, because he's a man and he likes to procrastinate, because that's what we do, he goes out the very last minute on Christmas Eve, and he tries to find this Turbo Man. And everywhere he goes, he cannot find Turbo Man, because Turbo Man is the most popular gift of Christmas that year. And so it's sold out. He goes to the mall, he goes to Walmart, he goes to Kmart, he goes anywhere he can think of to find Turbo Man. He goes miles and miles away, and he cannot find Turbo Man anywhere. And I think the reason that I like uh, Jingle All the Way so much is because I think as you watch that movie, um, it illustrates a very important truth. And, and it applies to all of us, whether you're young, you're old, you're Christian, non-Christian, rich or poor. The principle that is in this movie is that all of us are willing to go after something of value if we want it bad enough. And sometimes we will do that at all costs. All of us are willing to go after something of value if we want it bad enough. And sometimes we will go 
at at all costs. And I was thinking about this, and and that's so true in America, isn't it? Like, do you ever watch the news at at Christmas time, and uh, say a big company or corporation like Apple will release a new cell phone, and you'll see on the news that people are just standing in line for hours and hours and hours in the rain and in the cold, and they're just waiting for this new cell phone to come out so they can really overpay for it, spend like $500 on a new cell phone or something like that. The fact that um, we will go after something of value is not just true of Christmas gifts. It's, it could be true of anything, really. It could tr- be true of a job title. Maybe there was a job title that you wanted, and in order to achieve that job title, you had to put in a lot of hours at work. Maybe you had to go the extra effort. Maybe you had to do things that you, weren't, you didn't always want to do, but if there was a job title to you that you wanted that was of value, you would go at it, go for it at all costs. Or maybe it's a relationship. Um, when I met my wife at Liberty, and if you've ever been onto the campus of Liberty, there's this big rock called the Spirit Rock. And before, like a football game, sometimes people will spray paint it. It'll say, like, go L-U or something like that. And uh, the way I asked my wife out on our first date, which was Valentine's, I, I spray painted the rock red, and I said, will you be my Valentine? And you can say all right there if you want to. That's precious. <laughs> That's sweet, ain't it? <clears throat> but when I met my wife, I didn't know that she was going to be my wife. Like, she was just some hot girl that I knew on campus. And so after I got to spend a little time with her and get to know her, I was like, man, she will be mine. Yeah, I'm going to go after her. She's going to be mine. And so it cost me something because I, there was something of value I wanted. I wanted a relationship with this girl. It cost me something. It cost me money to go out on dates. It cost me my time. I could have been hanging out with my friends, but I wanted to hang out with this girl. So if there is something that we want that is of value to us, we will go after it at all costs. And I think that that's the the concept I want to connect here in Luke 15 and in Luke chapter 8, um, because it all begins with Jesus telling a story about a shepherd that is willing to pursue a lamb at all costs. So look at uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 3. It starts like this. So he told them this parable, What man among you who has 100 sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the one until he finds it? Now stop right here for a second. Now, a parable is basically a story that serves to illustrate a principle that usually has some kind of cultural significance to the original audience. So right off the bat, because I do not live in this culture of shepherds, I don't connect with this parable very well. Because when I read this, my reaction to the question is, no, I would not leave 99 sheep to go after one, because I know that there are wolves out there, I know that it is not very uh, nice terrain. 99 just seems like a pretty good number to me. 99 out of 100, that's not that bad. A couple of years ago, um, I was, when I was youth pastoring in North Carolina, we brought up a group to Lynchburg, and we went to Scaremare. Has anybody ever been to Scaremare in Lynchburg, like the big haunted house thing? It's pretty cool if you've never been there. Go check that out. But we brought up a group to Scaremare, and we went to a football game at Liberty, and uh, We took about 30 kids with us, and uh, as we were going in, there was a group of 
probably the crowd was about 12,000 people that day for that game, and I lost one of the kids. Couldn't find him. For a youth pastor, that is probably the scariest moment in your entire life as you lose somebody else's kid. And so we did everything we could do. I mean, we, we, uh, we walked around the stadium. We walked on the outside of the stadium looking for this kid. Um, we went to the, to the announcer box, and they said his name over the PA system. I even I call, I contacted the Liberty Police Department, and they were looking for him all over campus. And to make things worse is he wasn't even one of my kids in the youth group. Like, he was a friend of a friend who got invited, and I wasn't even sure what this kid's name was. And so I was just kind of on edge and, and didn't really know what to do. And so uh, one of the kids knew who this kid's mom was, and I called his mom, and I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. We lost your kid, and we have no idea where he's at. And she was not very happy with me. And um, at the end of the day, we had to go to Scaremare because we had tickets for this haunted house. And I just thought... I mean, we have to leave him, right? I mean, I don't know what else it is. Probably makes me the worst person in the world. But, like, I mean, you come back with 29 out of 30 kids, that's not too bad, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty good, right? But Jesus is talking about sheep. I mean, he's not talking about people. I mean, I'm not going to go after one sheep when I've got 99 more. That seems like pretty good, a pretty good number to me. But here's why I don't connect with this parable very well. I'm not a shepherd. I don't know anyone that is a shepherd. I mean, um, do we have any shepherds here today? I mean, you know what shepherds do all day? They hang out with sheep, really. I mean, does anybody here hang out with sheep? I mean, if you do, it's okay. You're weird. But um, in Jesus' day, they did know shepherds. And there's probably a good chance that there are people in his audience that were shepherds. And so when Jesus told this parable, it would have connected with his audience right away. Because as I was studying this passage and I was reading through some commentaries, I realized that, well, maybe if I was a shepherd and my livelihood depended on the sheep, maybe I would leave 99 just to go after one. Because if you stop and think about it, it's incredible what kind of relationship the shepherd has with the sheep. When a lamb would be born, the shepherd would literally help deliver the lamb. He would pick it up and he would wash it off. He would hold it up, and he would, he would kind of look at it and inspect it a little bit. And if the lamb wasn't healthy, if there was something wrong with that lamb, he wouldn't just treat it like an like a old dying dog. He wouldn't take it out back and, and put it down. He would just simply make a mental note that there was something wrong with this lamb, and as time went on, if something happened, he would learn how to take care of the lamb. And the, the fascinating thing is, is that when a lamb is young, he will learn to listen to the shepherd's voice. And after a while, he will learn how to only follow the shepherd's voice. So if a shepherd has a hundred sheep, he knows everything about those hundred sheep. He knows which one is which. He knows what they like to eat. He knows what pasture pasture is uh, best for them to eat out of. He knows their history. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their issues. He knows each and every detail of every lamb's life. So if just one of the 100 sheep get lost, it's a pretty big deal to the shepherd. In today's society, we would almost equate it to when someone loses their pet. Have you ever ever seen anyone lose their mind because they lost a pet? Maybe you've lost a pet before. And I understand, like, pets can be a part of the family, unless they're cats because cats are stupid. But um, I'm just kidding if you have cats. But people, when they lose a pet, they will go 
everywhere to find that pet. They will put posters up. They will put signs up. They will go door to door. They will call radio stations. They will do anything they can to find this pet. But I was thinking about this passage, and I was like, what if this is sheep? We don't connect well with sheep. What if, what if it was a child? What if Jesus said you have three child and one goes missing? Doesn't that change the complexion of the story a little bit? It gets a little bit more serious. Some parents are probably like, hey, that's not a bad idea. Sometimes I think that. But that would be a big deal. And so for a shepherd to lose one sheep, that's a big deal. And then Luke uh, 15 and verse 5, he goes on, he says, When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. Now again, I don't get it. You're throwing a party for a lost sheep. Doesn't sound like the kind of party I want to go to. Uh, understand if it was a child. I would get that. Like, your child goes missing and the police find your child and you bring them home. And yeah, you invite all the neighbors, you have a big party. But for a sheep, I just, I don't connect with that very well. But again, understanding the context in this society, if a shepherd loses a sheep, it's a big deal. And then verse 7 says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And so what's cool, what's cool about this parable is Jesus affirms this principle that if you see something that is of value to you and if you want it bad enough, you will go after it at all costs. And then you don't have to turn there, but John 10, 14 through 15, Jesus takes it to the ne next level. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me as the father knows me and I know the father and then he affirms the principle, he says, I laid down my life for the sheep. So in other words, not only does Jesus pursue us because he's the good shepherd, and to him we, we have value, but he would pursue us at all cost, even if it means he had to lay down his life for us. And if you look at Luke chapter 8, keeping that in mind, I think that there are three ways found in Luke chapter 8 in which Jesus pursues us. So we're going to talk about three ways in which Jesus pursues us. And remember the principle, if there is something that we want and we want it bad enough and it has value to us, we will pursue it at all costs. Number one, and by the way, I'm a Baptist, so all my points start with the letter P. Just how we roll. Um, number one, he pursues us physically. Jesus pursues us physically. Look at chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And if, I don't know if you're the type of person that underlines in your Bible, but if you are, I would just underline that little phrase, those last three words, opposite um, of Galilee, which is opposite Galilee. And those three words are very important because it's going to actually give us some insight into the context of the narrative, the region of the Gerasenes that Luke mentions here um, is still around today. It's the region um, in Israel, modern-day Kersi is the name of it, Kersi, K-U-R-S-I. And this was kind of a weird place to go um, if you are a traveler. First, because the Sea of Galilee on that side had so many steep hills and so many caves that people would often go there to bury their dead in the cave. So it was like basically just like a big graveyard right there. But also, um, Geressa, the city in that area, was very important to the Roman military because they contracted farmers 
to raise pigs right there. So they would often um, have these pigs, and they would slaughter them and butcher them, and they would send the meat to the front lines to the soldiers of the Roman military. So it was a very important place. And if you are a Jew, this region is off limits to you because, number one, Jews were a little bit superstitious about graveyards and tombs and things like that, so they always tried to avoid those places because they considered them cursed. And pigs were considered ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. So the area of Geressa, if you are a Jew, is not really a place that you want to be. And what I want you to see is that not only is Geressa geographically opposite of Galilee, that Luke says, but is also spiritually opposite of Galilee, which is very important. So look at verse 27. It says, when he, that's Jesus, who is a Jew, by the way, when he got out on the land, a demon-possessed man met him uh, from the town, met him. So we've got to stop right here because we've got to talk about this demon-possessed man. Without pointing to anybody, who is the weirdest person that you know? Don't, don't point to anybody. You don't even really have to answer that question. When I was a kid, um, my mom taught vacation Bible school at our church. And uh, this little girl, I remember, came to um, vacation Bible school, and I didn't know her from school or anything like that, but she really took to my mom. And one day, um, she didn't have a ride home after VBS, so my mom volunteered to take her home. And she lived in, uh, she lived in a trailer park that was kind of adjacent to the church. It wasn't really that far. And we went into the house. She wanted us to come into the house and meet her mom, and so my mom and I went in. And uh, the first thing I noticed when I went into the trailer was that it was filled with smoke, like you could barely see anything at all. And then um, as the smoke kind of cleared, I saw this lady, and bless her heart, she was probably like 700 pounds, for real. And um, I noticed that on the walls there was Kenny Rogers posters everywhere. Y'all know who Kenny Rogers is? You got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him. That Kenny Rogers, you know what I'm talking about? There was Kenny Rogers posters all over the wall. She had those decorative plates that you put on the wall that had Kenny Rogers' picture all over the, the plates, which was kind of weird. And then when I saw her, she had a Kenny Rogers t-shirt on. And me being a young kid, not knowing any better, I just kind of blurted out, hey, what's up with all the Kenny Rogers stuff? And I'll never forget what this lady said to me. I think it's etched in my mind. She said, oh, I love Kenny Rogers. I would kill somebody over Kenny Rogers. And I was like, Mom, we got to go. I mean, this, this lady's got more problems than a math book. But this guy right here in Luke uh, chapter 8, 27, he takes, he takes the cake. Look at how 27 finishes. It says, For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house but in tombs. This is what bothers me when I hear people say that the Bible is not interesting. Because this is probably the craziest story. Here Jesus gets out of the boat in a place that he's really not supposed to be. Because for a Jew, this is not a good place to be. And here is this demon-possessed man who is naked. We don't know why. But he is not wearing any clothes. And he doesn't even live in a house. He lives in a graveyard. How many of you, when you were growing up or you had kids growing up, you gave them one of those Bible coloring books that you would get like at the Dollar Tree? This is not one of those stories you see in a Bible coloring book for your kids. But look at this whole thing from Jesus' perspective. If you look at the immediate context earlier in chapter 8, and you don't have to turn there, but in, he's got to be tired. Jesus has to be exhausted. In verse 1, Luke tells us that Jesus is basically on this preaching tour, traveling from village to village. And they say after you preach one sermon, 
Um, it's the equivalent of putting eight hours of work um, emotionally into a day. And he's been doing this nonstop from village to village. In verse 4, there's a large crowd gathered around him, and he spends the whole day preaching in the hot sun. In verse 22, they're sailing, and Jesus falls asleep. And doesn't it bother you like nothing else when you've just fallen asleep and somebody wakes you up? That is the worst. And they wake Jesus up because there is a storm, and they have to go wake Jesus up to calm the storm. And then he steps out of the boat in this region, and here comes this naked, demon-possessed man running up to him. And so don't, don't miss this, because this is the point. Jesus left where it was very comfortable to go to a place where it was very uncomfortable for him to be. Jesus, place, Jesus left a place that was very comfortable to go to a place that was uncomfortable. He left Galilee, where even though he might have been tired, things were pretty good. There are no, un, there are no unclean pigs running around. Um, there are no demon-possessed naked guys running up to him. People are coming from everywhere to hear him preach. People are being saved. Lives are being changed. And he left all of that to go to a place that wasn't only geographically opposite of where he was, but was spiritually opposite as well. And so my question was, why in the world would you want to go to Galilee just to go to the Gerasenes? Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to leave all that comfort behind? And then it hit me, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who would leave 99 just to go after one guy, and he would leave behind all of that comfort to do it. And after all, that's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that a picture of the gospel, that we are sinful, depraved, lost sheep who have strayed away from the shepherd, and Jesus, or God, physically left the comfort of heaven to come to earth to pursue us? He, came, he went from a spiritually opposite place in heaven to earth to pay the price of our sin to pursue us at all costs even if it meant laying down his life but that's not where the story ends look at verse 28 in luke chapter 8 when he saw jesus he cried out fell down before him and said in a loud voice what do you have to do with me jesus you son of the most high god i beg you don't tor don't torment me i love this passage because isn't it funny how the demons have better theology than most americans I mean, they, they know exactly who Jesus is. He's not just a good moral person. He's not just a good example. He's not just a prophet or a good teacher. They recognize him as the son of the most high God. And then verse 29 says, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demons into the deserted places. Now here's the thing. We don't really know much about this guy. We know he's naked. We know he's chained up. We know he's been tormented by demons for a long time. In fact, uh, Luke uses the word sunaparzo in the Greek to describe this guy's condition. It literally means to be, uh, it literally means to be carried along or to be dragged into something. And I, I, I know you guys don't know me, so I, I can say this in front of you, but, and you might think I'm crazy, and that's okay. But I do to an extent, believe in demon possession. I really do. I mean, I don't know how it works. I, I, I've never seen anyone that was demon-possessed to my knowledge. Um, I don't know if it comes and goes. I've never even seen the exorcist. But I think sometimes what we might rationalize into a behavioral disorder or a disease could be spiritual warfare. It could be 
demonic activity. I'm not saying that's always the case, but because of the language that, that Luke uses here, and I, and I believe this is just me. This is, I don't have a verse for this, but I believe that the reason this guy was tormented by demons for so long was because there was something in this guy's past. There could have been something in this guy's past, some, perhaps some sin that he got caught up in that was very dangerous, and the demons kept carrying him along or dragging him along into this lifestyle of sin. And so not only did this guy have literal demons, and he had a literal demon, but he had figurative demons in his past as well. And, and this is just speculation, but I can just picture this in my mind that there could have been some nights where this guy just sat along the banks of the Sea of Galilee, among the caves, among the tombs where he lived, and naked and chained up and broken, and looking back at his past and saying, man, if I just would have made some different decisions in life, man, if I just would have changed this or changed that or not gotten caught up in that particular, particular sin, I bet life would have turned out differently and I think this guy probably had something in his past that affected his present that in his mind thought would determine his future. I think this guy had something in his past that affected his present that in his mind would determine his future. And I bet if we were all honest today, we've probably all been there and said that and done the same thing. We've probably all had uh, something in our lives something in our past that has affected our present and something we've been called up in and carried along in that we think will determine our future. But the good news is, is that the good shepherd pursued us. When Jesus died on the cross, not only did he pay for my present sin, but he paid for my past sin as well. And if that was all that Jesus ever did, if that was all that Jesus ever did was to forgive my present sin and forgive my past sin, that would be awesome and way much more than what I ever deserved. But that would only be half the gospel. Not only does he pay for our sin, but in the process, he gives us his righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us so that not only are we forgiven, but we are set free. And now our future is not determined by our past mistakes, but it is determined rather by his grace, which leads to point number two. Not only does... Jesus pursue us physically, but he has pursued us personally. How many of you, I'm, I'm going to look at some of the younger people here to help me out with this. How many of you know what a hashtag is? You raise your hand. You know what a hashtag is? Okay, you, you might recognize it if you saw it on TV as like a number sign or something like that on a phone. It's like the pound sign. But a hashtag is what a lot of people use um, in social media like Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Um, sometimes you'll see often, um, if you're on Facebook, somebody has done something, they have like a hashtag and, and like a descriptor after the hashtag. Um, usually when you see a hashtag, it means that somebody is trying to label something or to maybe start a topic or something like that. For instance, if I, uh, if I took a picture of my phone of the mountain back here and I posted it to like Facebook, I could hashtag that, and it would allow me to label that picture. And if I ever wanted to go back to that picture, I could find that hashtag and find that picture. Um, so I just thought if, if it's okay with you, maybe we would just play a quick game called the hashtag game to help us wrap our mind around what a hashtag is. So, for instance, if I said hashtag Virginia Cavaliers fan, 
And I, how many of you would say hashtag you are a Virginia Cavaliers fan? Anyone UVA fans? So, so you could say hashtag UVA fan, and that would label you. You would be labeled as a UVA fan. What if I said coffee lover? Hashtag coffee lover. How many of you love coffee? For God so loved the world, he created Dunkin' Donuts. Am I right? <clears throat> what about Chick-fil-A lover? Hashtag Chick-fil-A lover. Anybody love Chick-fil-A? If you don't love Chick-fil-A, I'm going to call Pastor Justin. We're going to have a prayer session. <laughs> Some of you are like, I want Chick-fil-A right now. But you can't because it's Sunday. You can't go to Chick-fil-A today. So are we on the same page about what a hashtag is? A hashtag is used to label something. <clears throat> well, we have to ask ourselves this. Who has the right to label someone or something? Now, I was thinking about that. We have two options. Option number one would be the maker. If someone makes something or produces something, then they have to write, they have the right to label whatever it is that they made. For instance, if Ford makes a car, they have the right to label that with a Ford emblem on the front. They just wouldn't go to a Dodge truck and put a Ford emblem on it because they didn't make that truck. They have to, they have to label whatever it is that they made. Um, so the maker of something has the right to label it. Option number two would be the buyer. When someone buys something and they purchase it, they are the rightful owner, and because it's theirs, they have to, the right to label that thing. For instance, when I was a kid and uh, started Little League Baseball, my parents took me to um, the sporting goods store and let me pick out any glove I wanted, and when I got home, I labeled it with my name. I wrote my name on it because that was my baseball glove. I had the right to do that because it was mine. So a buyer has a right to label something. So keeping that in mind, look at verse 30. Luke 8, verse 30 says, what is your name, Jesus asked him. And then it begins to get a little bit scary right here. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. In verse 31, and they begged him not to banish them into the abyss. Now, here's the thing. We all wear labels, right? I mean, we all have labels. Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, rich, poor, pretty, ugly. Everybody has a label. And this guy has been labeled by Satan. Or Satan has hashtagged him, if you will. And if people in this day were to have cell phones and use Facebook and use Twitter and use Instagram, they might would have snapped a picture of him and put hashtag crazy, hashtag weird, hashtag insane. Or maybe they would have hashtagged him sinner. Maybe they would have labeled him satanic, sinner. But the most important question that we could ever answer is who has the right to label us? Who has the right to label us? If we're going to say that the only person that has the right to label someone or something is either the maker or the buyer, then we have to ask who has labeled us because we all have labels. And if you're a Christian, Ephesians chapter 2 answers that, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. But Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. In other words, Satan has tried to label every one of us. He has tried to hashtag us dead, children under wrath, under authority of him. But verse 4 goes on to say, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, 
even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Translation, we are all spiritually labeled. You can either belong to Satan or you can belong to Jesus. And Jesus is the only rightful person that is allowed to label us because not only is he our maker, but he is the buyer because he purchased our sin with his own blood. So finally, number three, he pursues us purposefully. The good shepherd pursues us physically. The good shepherd pursues us personally. And he pursues us purposefully. Look back at verse 32. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Verse 34. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it to the town and to the countryside. And then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. And then look at this. They were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. Now, the first time I read this, I was like, why? Why in the world would they be afraid? They had just seen a miracle. I mean, Jesus has gone out of his way physically and personally to pursue this man that was chained up and naked and living in a graveyard that probably most people tried to stay away from. I mean, um, you don't, I mean, Luke 15 says that you throw a party for the lost sheep. Why would, why would you be afraid? Why don't you throw a party for this occasion right here? But then I thought about it like this. The pigs have drowned. Jesus cast the demon out of this man into the pigs where they were farmed and raised specifically for the Roman military. So in the morning when the soldiers wake up and there's no bacon on the breakfast plate, somebody's going to be pretty mad about that because all the pigs have died. All the pigs have drowned. The next time a government official or a military official for the Roman government comes through the region and they see all the pigs that were dead, somebody's going to have to pay for that. And so they were afraid, to, and they asked Jesus to leave, because don't miss this. Following Jesus was going to cost them something. Following Jesus was going to cost them physically, but also financially. Now, I'm not a math whiz, but just imagine if there was 2,000 pigs that day who drowned and say that they sold those pigs to the government for $10 a pop. That's $20,000 gone, just like that. How many of you would be a little bit sick to your stomach if you looked at your bank account, and there was $20,000 gone, just like that? I mean, that would kind of worry me a little bit, right? I think I would be afraid of what was going on. The, the people who saw Jesus do this wonderful miracle asked him to leave because they would rather have the presence of pigs than the power of Jesus. These people would rather have the presence of pigs rather than have the power of Jesus. And Jesus gave them exactly what they wanted. It says he left, and nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that he ever returned to the region of the Gerasenes. But now listen to the end of the passage, and then I'll sit down and shut up. Luke 38, this is probably my favorite verses in this whole story. The man from whom the demons had departed kept begging him, Jesus, to be with him. But he sent him away and said, Go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. 
And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town all that Jesus had done for him. Just because Jesus never went back to these people didn't mean that he stopped pursuing them. Instead, he used the very man who was an outsider to them to reach those exact same people. And if you can still go to this place today, if you were to go to modern-day Kersey, region of the Gerasenes, there's only one thing that you would find there. And I, I wish I would have made a PowerPoint and had the picture up for you because it's the only thing that's there. The only thing that's there is a church. The only thing that's there is a church. Where once this um, community of pig farmers and grave, graveyards existed, through one crazy, naked, demon-possessed man, the only thing left there now is a church. What was once a land, a pagan land, now worships the Son of the Most High God. And Jesus pursued this man physically, he pursued this man personally, and he pursued this man purposefully. And that's exactly how he pursues us as well. That's exactly how Jesus pursues us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for your word, for showing us how you pursue us. You pursue us physically. You left heaven and came to earth to die a death that we should have died, the one that we deserved. You pursue us, Lord, personally. You came for us, Lord. You, you died for us, for me, for everyone in this congregation, Lord. It wasn't just a universal death, Lord, but you, you had a plan all the way back from Genesis to reconcile us to yourself. And we thank you that you did that. And you pursue us purposefully. You pursue us for your glory. You pursue us so that we may be image bearers of you, Lord, to show your love to other people who don't know it. You pursue us so that we could have purpose, so that we could be found righteous before a holy God, Lord. And there may be someone here today, Lord, that feels like the lost sheep. Maybe they've strayed away from you, God. Maybe they feel like they're struggling to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. And Lord, I'm not saying that anyone has ever lost their salvation because we can't lose our salvation. At, at no point in this story did you ever cease to be the good shepherd in pursuit after us, Lord. But I pray that you would teach us to discern your voice over all others, all the voices that culture sends us, Lord, our society, that we learn to discern your voice through your word. That's how you speak to us, God. And we thank you that you have pursued us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.